had this awesome promotion. It was called the Monopoly game. Raise your hand real quick if you remember that. Okay, all right, good, good, good. Oh my goodness, it was so fun. If you got a large drink or large fries or a Happy Meal, on the product you had a little peel-off sticker, Monopoly Square, that if you peeled it off on the other side, you might win a prize. And there was, um, you know, it could be something as small as a cheeseburger, or it could be a million dollars. That was the grand prize. And I, I wanted to go to McDonald's all the time to get the Monopoly pieces, right? To collect them all and build them up and try to win. But I, it's come to our light in recent years that the game was rigged. I don't know if you knew this. The man who was entrusted with delivering and distributing the winning pieces was stealing them and selling them off to his friends and family. Even the mafia was involved in this. And, you know, the, uh, the, the winning pieces never actually even made it to the restaurants. Now, that makes me mad. Not because I care about justice, but I think about 12-year-old Kyle and all the Happy Meals I tore through convinced that I was going to win a million dollars, that I was going to be a millionaire. I just knew it was going to happen. And in truth, I never actually had a chance. Now, I still ate the Happy Meals, don't get me wrong. I still enjoyed my McDonald's, but I, it was, the game was rigged. The whole contest was fixed. None of us actually had a chance. See, when we talk about something being fixed, something being rigged, it's always negative. Because what we understand in that case is somebody's cheating. The Houston Astros have gotten in trouble in baseball for fixing games by stealing signs, right? A big issue now that they've gotten in trouble for. It's negative. It's somebody's cheating. Something's unfair. Something's unjust. But y'all, for today, at least for today, I want to flip the script for us. I want to talk about something that for us is rigged, it's fixed, but in a wonderful, magnificent way, in a way so great, so, so glorious, that we couldn't have thought it up. It could only happen in the mind of God. What we're going to see today in Romans chapter 8, what the Apostle Paul wants to show us, is that the Christian life, our Christian hope, is totally rigged. What we have in Jesus is fixed. It's unshakable. It's unchangeable. It's ours both now and forever, and nothing can touch it. Nothing can diminish it, what we've been given as those who follow Christ. Uh, no matter how things change around us, what has been done for us in God cannot be changed. Uh, now, as a pastor, I, I'm going to just confess up front, I'm scared of what we're about to preach because it's so good, it's so lofty and grand that I feel like anything I try to say about it, I'm going to, I'm going to bring it down. I'm going to risk uh, diminishing it in some way. Uh, and so I'm just going to do my very best to hold it up for us, to try to explain it, but really to just let us enjoy this wonderful truth together. I mentioned this a few weeks ago. Some people have said that the Bible is like a mountain range, and in that case, Romans 8 is the peak. It's the pinnacle. Um, and if that's true, then Romans 8, 28 through 30 is the very highest point where the flag gets planted. Okay, this is the top of the top right here. And so we're going to take a look at these just three verses, a very short scripture, but more powerful than we can really comprehend. Uh, as we get into the scripture, listen, the, the context here is suffering. That's been Paul's focus now for several verses, a couple of paragraphs. Paul has focused in on our present pain 
and trial and difficulty. That's the, the issue that he's addressing here in these verses. It's a continuation of the suffering uh, topic. And Paul has already told us his opinion, what he considers. He says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not even worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Present suffering, but future glory, and they're not in the same ballpark. The glory will far outweigh the present pain. Well, now he's going to show us the grounding for this, the foundation for this belief. Look at Romans 8, verse 28. Paul says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he, Jesus, would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom God predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is God's word. Uh, Paul begins with an affirmation. We see it in verse 28. He says, we know. What is it that we know? We know that God causes all things to work together for good. Now, I know, I can be fairly certain that all of us in this room, we at least want to believe that. We'd love to believe that. We certainly hope that that is true. But that's not the mentality of the Apostle Paul. Paul is not saying, you know, all things may turn out for good. No, he speaks without any wiggle room. He gives us no maybes here. There's no potential possibility. No, he says something is certain. It's fixed. He says, this we know. Now, where does that kind of certainty come from? It does not come from us. It cannot come from within. Uh, you know as well as I do, none of us can see into the future. And we certainly cannot control the future. But Paul says we can know the future because we know God. That's where our certainty comes from. That's the foundation, the rock we stand upon. We can know what the future holds because we know God. Something that, that the Apostle Paul has been telling us all throughout Romans chapter 8, that when you come to faith in Jesus, you're not just adding something into your life along with all the rest. You don't add Jesus in as a new form of religion or belief or, uh, or practical way of, of new being, right? I'm going to just add in the, the new rules and start to try to live differently. That's not how Christianity works. What Paul has told us just in Romans 8, Paul has said, uh, you have, if you are a Christian, you have been born again. You have new life. You have been saved from condemnation, both now and forever. You have been rescued from sin and from death. You've been adopted as God's own child. And you've been sealed forever by God's indwelling Spirit. All of those things have happened, and those are God's gifts to give. We simply receive them. We cannot earn or achieve. God does it. We receive it. And therefore, we're not standing on shaky ground. If, if Christianity was just an additive to your life, if it's just something you put in with all the rest of your beliefs and practices, well, then you'd have nothing to stand on. Neither would I. 
But if we are standing on what God has done through Jesus Christ, we can stand securely because it's upon Him, not upon ourselves. And that's why Paul is so quick to grant us a certainty here up front. He says, we know that God causes all things to work together for good. Now, what does he mean when he says that? What is, what is, what is God actually doing in that verse? Well, it doesn't mean that somehow all things just naturally work together on their own. Uh, that's kind of a, a general human belief we wish were true. We wish that we could look at this broken world and think, you know, everything's going to find its way in the end. Everything's going to get wrapped up and tied up in a nice bow in the end. But we know better. We know that's not how life works. That's not what Paul's saying. Not that everything tends to turn out good on its own, but that God causes the good. And this is a big picture promise. When Paul says all things, he really does mean all things. Not some, not most, but all. All things God works together for good. And specifically, remember, if the context is in suffering here, we're, we're not worried about our good things turning out for good. They're already good. We're worried about the rest. What about the bad stuff? What about the pain and the suffering and the brokenness and the sin? How can somehow, how can all that stuff turn out for good? What about my anxiety or my depression, my disease? What about death? What about injustice? How can those things possibly result in good? And that's a fair question. But you notice how the promise is framed. If God is the one causing all things to work together, that implies that God is sovereign over all things. That's a big word, but sovereign means that God presides over the creation in complete control. God has never experienced anxiety in heaven, uncertainty. God's not waiting for us to act, and then he's going to come in and clean up behind us. No, God presides. He is sovereign. He is in control, even when it feels like he's not. Uh, read Isaiah 40 as a wonderful example. Jennifer pointed this out to me this week, that God sits over the circle of the earth, Isaiah says, and everything is under his control. It all belongs to him, and, and it, it's under his feet, as it were. And so if God presides over his creation in perfect power, then God alone actually has the ability to do what Romans 8.28 is saying. He actually can work all things together for good. In the totality of his purpose, God can take even bad stuff, even evil things he can take and redeem and bring about a good result. Those things that seem impossible for us are not impossible with God. Uh, probably, y'all, the, the, the classic example of this is in the story of Joseph. If you read the last several chapters of Genesis, you get the, this wonderful story of Joseph. Joseph, who was an upright man, and yet he was treated with such cruelty beyond our imagination. His own brothers sold him into slavery to Egypt and faked his death and told their father that he had been killed. And once he was in Egypt, Joseph, of course, was doing what was right, and he was rising up in the ranks because he was so favored by God, and then he was crushed by an accusation, a crime that he did not commit. He was thrown into a dungeon, and in that dungeon, he languished for years. Years he was forgotten. 
And yet the scripture continually tells us that God's favor was with Joseph. Even though as we're reading it, certainly as Joseph was experiencing it, it couldn't have felt that way. Surely Joseph didn't feel the favor of God moment by moment as he sat there chained up in the dark. But the favor of God was with him. And eventually, not only was Joseph freed from the dungeon, but he was raised up to second in command over all of Egypt. And basically, then the known world, Joseph became second in command over all, only second to Pharaoh. And when the opportunity comes at the end of Genesis for Joseph to face his brothers and have his revenge, he says no. They're afraid he's going to kill them. He says no. Why not, Joseph says, because what you intended for evil, God meant for good. We see that? In other words, what, what man's intentions were, they were evil. What Joseph's brothers did was evil. What happened to him was bad. But God redeemed Joseph and saved a great many lives through him. What was evil, God brought it together. He worked it together for good. Now, we get glimpses of that. I'm sure you've gotten glimpses of that in your own life. Things that were at one point awful and uncertain. Uh, You saw the the hand of God work those things together, and you've seen a good result. You're better off for it, right? Hopefully, you've experienced some manner of that. But that's not what Romans 8 is really saying. What Paul is saying here, y'all, he's not saying things are bad now, but just wait a week, wait a month, wait a year. No, what Paul is talking about is in the totality here. Because some of our bad things never turn around on this side of heaven. And we we come to understand that God's will was not to solve all of our little problems, to put out all of our little fires along the way, but that God had a greater and more eternal purpose in what he was doing. An eternally good plan that even the worst things in this life really would, in the end, be redeemed. That's the promise. And this promise, Paul says, belongs to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Now, ultimately, Paul is just talking about Christians here. He's not talking about an an elite squad of Christians that we've got to work our way up to. Those who love God, who are called according to his purpose, everybody who has come to faith in Jesus Christ does fall into that category. This is, y'all, this is a promise that the redeeming, eternal goodness of God belongs to you by faith in Christ. If you've been called, meaning you've been saved according to his purpose, then you can stand securely on this and you can know what the future holds. That's what verse 28 is telling us. If you've been called according to his purpose. Now, this is where things get really exciting, okay? Uh, if, if, If verse 28 wasn't awesome enough on its own, What is God's purpose? We've been called according to his purpose. What does that mean? Well, look at verse 29. Here's God's purpose. Paul continues, For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he, Jesus, would be the firstborn among many brethren. Uh, This verse 29 begins something that has been called the golden chain. Uh, These are five great works of God, exclusively for God. Only he can do these things. 
and they are unbroken. They all work together. Not one of them can be taken away or lost or even diminished. The golden chain is connected together. Uh, First, we see, Paul says, to be a Christian means that we are foreknown by God. Now that word foreknow, to foreknow something, very simple, it's to see into the future. It's to see what's going to happen. You know what's going to happen in advance. Certainly God has that power and that ability to know in advance the future, right? We sure hope he he does, right? He's not really worth worshiping if he has the same limitations that we do. God knows the future, yes. But, but when the Bible talks about God foreknowing, it's not just knowledge in the sense that we possess knowledge. It's expressing intention. It's expressing sovereign activity. Uh, Paul doesn't say God foreknew things about us. Paul says God foreknew us. That he knew you. And this indicates for us a, a loving, a choosing, a setting of his affections upon us. We are foreknown. There's an eternal purposefulness here in what God's doing. You've been known and loved in advance. That's what it's saying. And therefore, God also predestined us. He determined something for us in advance to become conformed to the image of of his son. Now, when we let's go back to this question. How do I know that God's going to work all things together, all the bad stuff in my life and he's going to bring it together for good? How do I know that? Well, this is the answer. This is the grounding. In our suffering, God's goal is not just to deliver us from the hardship, but God is slowly and surely conforming us to the image of Jesus. That's what he's doing. He's making you ever more like Christ. And what that means for us is that no pain is wasted. No matter how senseless our pain at times may feel, there is no such thing as purposeless pain for a child of God. Because in all of it, he's making us more and more into the likeness of Jesus. God has predetermined that it would be so. He's already set it into motion and defined the parameters and he has promised to see it through. That is happening right now in the midst of your pain if you have faith in the Lord. It is. Whether you feel it or not, whether you really believe it or not, that is the promise. Your pain is never wasted. And the ultimate fulfillment of the promise to be conformed to the image of Jesus does not happen on this side of heaven, but across the line. In glory, we will be made like him, the scripture says. And so it's a promise that carries an eternal flavor with it. Y'all, that's why Paul adds in that phrase, so that Jesus would be the firstborn among many brethren. Doesn't that seem strange? Firstborn, at least in this case, is a, um, is a statement of his resurrection. Peter uses the same statement, that Jesus is firstborn, that he's been raised from the dead first, that his resurrection was the first fruit of what was to come, that just as Jesus died but then rose again, never to die again, never to be corrupted, always and eternally glorious now forever, so will we who follow him in glory. By faith in Christ, we are those brethren, the brothers and sisters. 
He's the firstborn, but he's the firstborn among many. And that's the promise that exists for you and me. Is God working things together for good right here and now? Yes, he is, because even in our worst suffering, he's making us more like Christ. But the ultimate fulfillment yet awaits us, that we will follow him in resurrection and share with him in glory forever. Isn't that a great promise? That for all eternity, you will be, in some very real sense, you will be like Christ. Not divine, but we will share in his glory in a way that we could not earn, but that God has delighted to promise us. You see why Paul's so confident when he says, he says earlier in Romans 8, if we suffer with Christ, we will also be glorified with him. Paul knows this to be true, and he wants us to know it for ourselves. Now, I want, before we continue the, the golden chain here, I want to draw us back. Let me just chase one more rabbit trail here. Um, y'all remember verse 28, that word good? It's a word that's easy to, to hone in on because it's such a, we, we, we know what that word means, right? All things work together for good. But here's a threat for us. If we simply define good as we define it, we miss the wonderful truth behind it. See, y'all, I think tacos are good. I think fried catfish is good. It's all food, by the way. Is, you know, everything is good, right? Lots, lots of stuff is good. That can't possibly be what this means. This is goodness as God defines it. We, don't, we, we can't run the risk of lowering the definition here to suit our purposes. Y'all, if you're in pain right now, it's very possible that you would settle for less than eternal glory. I just want to be free from pain now. I just want to be delivered now. Wouldn't that be good? And certainly it would. But in that case, we, we might miss what's actually being promised, what's being guaranteed, what's been fixed for us here is this is goodness as God defines it. And therefore, this, this is a promise so spectacular. If God works all things together for good to those who are called according to his purpose, then his purpose cannot be to just put out all the little fires in life along the way. His purpose is to make you like Jesus Christ forever. And one day we'll certainly see from the other side of the perspective, and we'll be so glad that God did not give us a lower solution, a lesser relief, and he promised us a greater grace. One day we'll know it for ourselves. Let's be careful not to lower our definition of good and miss true goodness here. See, Paul, y'all, Paul is doing for something we, we, just, we desperately need. He's giving us assurance. He's giving us assurance. We are, I, I, maybe I don't speak for you, I certainly can speak for myself, we are prone to look at things like our own sin and then doubt our salvation. Doubt if God really loves me because I know my own heart. I know what I've done. We're prone perhaps to look at our own suffering and we begin to doubt God's goodness. How can he be good if he's allowing this to happen to me? We're prone perhaps to look at the brokenness of our world and then doubt God's promises. Is he really going to make this all right somehow? But in all of these things, Paul is, is pointing us to an unbroken chain of God's sovereign grace. There is no cause for doubt, only assurance, because we know who God is and God has acted on our behalf already 
in full. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And now look at verse 30. Look how it concludes. The final three links in the chain. Those whom God predestined, he also called. And those whom God called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Foreknow, predestined, call, justify, glorify. Uh, There's a fair amount of debate over the meaning of these verses right here. Um, I'm going to try my best to just very briefly define some terms and then maybe give a little explanation. Uh, I mentioned this a moment ago. To predestine means to predetermine, to decide beforehand that God has determined something about us and for us in advance. And having predestined us, Paul says, he also called us, which means God has initiated our salvation. God takes otherwise rebellious sinners and he draws us to himself. Uh, Some people refer to this as an effectual call. It's a call that has an effect to it, meaning God has not merely offered an open invitation in hopes that people may respond, but that God has intervened in our hearts to bring us most certainly to himself. And having called us, he justified us. That means that God has declared you righteous. Are you righteous in your own behavior, in your own estimation? No, we all know better. I'm not righteous. But if I've been justified by the blood of Jesus Christ, then God declares it so. He makes us righteous by his own intervening grace. Jesus died on our behalf, and therefore we've been once and for all forgiven of our sin. We've been made to live in perfect peace with God, and we've been made righteous in his sight. We've been justified. That is a finished act that God has graciously done on your behalf. And having been justified... We've also been glorified. He has glorified us. Now, you notice this. The last word glorified is in the past tense. Even though we know it hasn't happened yet. It's something yet future, right? That's what Paul's been telling us all along. There is a glory to be revealed to us. Future tense, and yet right here, past tense. Is Paul just grammatically wrong? Y'all, this is absolutely intentional. Absolutely intentional. Paul is saying that our future glorification with Christ is so certain that it is, uh, it's considered a settled fact. He speaks of it as if it's already happened because it is part of an unbroken chain, a chain that God set into effect before He even created the universe. And He will certainly finish the work that He's done. This glory for us is never up for grabs. That's why Paul says it so definitively. Glorified. Done. It's yours. Um, So what what do I believe about all this right here? Um, I believe that what Paul appears to be saying is in fact what he is saying. I did not always believe that. Uh, I spent several years as a younger Christian fighting tooth and nail to make these verses mean something else because I didn't like what they said. Here's what Paul appears to be saying. That if you are a Christian, it is because God knew you and chose you. 
and predetermined that you would be his child. And having drawn you to himself, he has declared you righteous forever, and he has guaranteed your glory forever with Christ. Now, some people hear what I just said. Some people hear that, and they rejoice. Uh, Others hear this, and we recoil. Or at the very least, we scratch our heads. This is, this is hard to take in. And really, the, the, the meat of it comes in that one word, predestined. That's the word that we tend to struggle with. Um, and we may ask questions about this. Well, gosh, if, if, if God predestined those who would be saved, doesn't that eliminate my free will? If, if God predestines salvation, doesn't that mean that not everybody in the world gets an equal and fair opportunity? to be saved? And those are really good questions, and there are a lot more good questions that are totally legitimate. Um, And I've wrestled hard with them. I hope you know this. Jennifer can can bear witness to this. I have, for a long time, wrestled with what I'm telling y'all right now. Uh, There was a time uh, from age 16 to age 24 that I looked at this idea here, not just as wrong, that it was biblically wrong, but that it was bad. God would be bad to do this. Um, But for me, uh, and and really it took about 10 years, because I'm slow, but over the course of about 10 years, uh, I came not only to see it, but to see it favorably and to embrace it, and now even to celebrate it. Something I never thought I would ever do. And so here, this is my appeal. We don't have time to parse out all the individual questions and responses. That's, I don't really believe that's what a sermon is designed to be anyway, but here's my appeal. If you have questions or arguments or anything of the sort, please call me, text me, email me, come find me after church. Let's set up a time to have some coffee. I'm always good for coffee, y'all, okay? I'll make you a deal. You pay, I'll pray, all right? <laughs> I'll even pay, all right? I mean it. Uh, I will, I, I have had over the course of many years now, I've had people graciously, patiently, lovingly walk me through my own questions. I still do. I still need that. We all do. And so I counted, I said it at the beginning, it is a privilege for me to be the pastor of Harvest Church. If you've got questions or struggles about what we're talking about, you come find me and let me help pastor you. I don't have all the answers, not by a mile. But we can engage in the conversation together and pray that God would be fruitful and gracious to us along the way. Um, Would you please do that? That's that's my open invitation to you. At the very least, send me an email, okay? But I want to encourage us to be careful here. If we get lost in the confusion or the debate or the struggle over this text, we actually miss what Paul's trying to do. When Paul talks about this golden chain, he's not trying to confuse us. He's certainly not trying to conflict with us. He's trying to comfort us. That's his goal, is comfort, is assurance. Remember the grounding of these verses, the grounding of verses 29 and 30, is what happens in 28. It's the word know, K-N-O-W. There's something that we know, and we know that God causes 
all things to work together for good to those who love Him. How is it that we can be this confident, be so certain, stand on such solid ground that even our worst pain is going to be one day redeemed? Paul says, because God foreknew you. Because God set His loving affection upon you before there was even a you to know. Before He even created the world. He had in His mind already what He was going to do with you. He knew you and loved you and He set His love upon you in advance. His gracious and saving purpose. He chose you for this. And so He brought you to faith and He called you to Himself, and He declared you righteous in His sight, and therefore your future glory is already written in heaven's cement. It cannot be changed. It will not be lost. Because God set His affection on you before you could do anything good to earn it or bad to lose it. God set His affection upon you knowing every trial that you would walk through. Before there was a before the earth had its foundations, God had done this for you and had already predetermined that He would send His Son on your behalf. That's how much He loves us. See, all this, I know this is deep stuff, and it's stuff that we may struggle to, to b- comprehend and even struggle to believe. But I want you to know it's not mechanical. That's one of the arguments that I used to always have. Well, God's just setting this thing in motion like a computer program. We're just robots operating what he set in motion, right? That's, that's what I always thought. This is mechanical. This is, this is dispassionate. No, y'all, listen. I'm going to give you a parallel verse. This is something so sweet. This is Ephesians 1. The Apostle Paul wrote this also. He's talking about the same thing, but listen to the emotion he fills these words with. Ephesians 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, in love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. The Beloved is Jesus. Y'all, you see what Paul is saying right there? That we have blessing, favor, status, love, adoption, kindness, free and glorious grace. We have it all given to us as a gift from a God who has delighted to set His mercy upon us and to fulfill His glorious plan by sending His own Son to die and be raised again on our behalf. If we would ever doubt God's love, Paul says, it's been in effect in the works. The fix has been in before the universe even existed at all. That's how much he's loved us. Only in the mind of God could this be possible. And so today, my hope, my heart, my appeal is that we would trust him for this grace. Trust him for it. Stand firm upon it. We are weak, but He is strong. And He has proven His strength from eternity past to eternity future that it might be as good as done on our behalf. Jonathan Edwards, years ago, 
summarized these verses in a way that I just couldn't do it. I think he was a teenager, actually, when he said this. But listen to how Edwards puts it. He says, because of Christ, our bad things turn out for good. Our good things can never be lost. And the best things are yet to come. Let's pray. Father, would you encourage us this morning? with a, a word of truth that we, we recognize is beyond us. Um, we will not on our own put all these puzzle pieces together and make them fit. And so if what Paul is saying is what he seems to be saying, we thank you, Lord, that we don't have to make it all fit, that you've done it that you have so loved us that you did not leave our eternity up for grabs, but that you knew us and loved us and set your grace and affection and purpose upon us before we were even here. And therefore, you call us and justify us and we will be glorified. Lord, will you grant us the 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 faith this morning to stand securely that we would uncross our fingers we don't hope for something that we're not certain about but our hope is sure you work all things together for good to those who love you to those whom you have called to conform to the image of your son Jesus would you father this morning Would you write that down in the cement of our hearts that we would be abundantly assured and confident and that our confidence would rest, Lord, not on ourselves, not on how we did today, not on our church attendance, not on our good intentions, that we would rest securely on the finished work of Jesus Christ. Lord, you predetermined that he would come and die before Adam and Eve even took a bite. You had set in motion, Lord, your great salvation um, that we might stand in it forever. Thank you. Thank you. Lord, give us faith to walk securely. Give us faith to worship more deeply. Give us faith, Lord, to... Uh, to pray more fervently because we're so secure as your children that even our, even our failures, even our hardships, even our weak and, la- and lousy prayers, we know they are heard because you have loved us completely. Father, I pray for the, um, the men and the women, the little kids of Harvest Church, that we would be the kind of people, Lord, who um, we don't parade around a great faith, but we do boast in a great Savior. And that we would be the kind of people who reflect that bright and beautiful light into this community and world. Lord, let it be so in Jesus' name. Amen.